The Guardian. Did the royal wedding stunt UK growth? I pronounce that they be man and wife together in the name of the Father. Could the United States really be about to run out of money? And was Europe just panicked into signing up for a single economic government? I'm Tom Clark, and on this week's podcast, we'll be asking, is the whole political world going money mad? Yep, the silly season has arrived, but it seems to have started with some deadly serious subjects. Joining me in the studio this week are The Guardian columnist Julian Glover Our economics editor Larry Elliott And the director of the IPPR think tank Nick Pearce A warm welcome to you all Well, it could have been worse But only because expectations were so dire That was the conclusion of most economists Looking at this week's growth figures That showed that the British economy Was still flat as a pancake Larry, the reports were pretty grim, but a bit mixed. You've dug into the detail. What was good and what was bad, or was everything bad? Well, there wasn't that much to crack open the champagne about, to be honest. The fact was that some people were expecting output to have actually fallen in the second quarter, so to that extent, these were slightly less gruesome than they might have been. But the dig beneath the figures, and what you see is that the economy shrank by about 6.5% during the recession, during six quarters, and it's recovered just 2.5 percentage points of that. So we're still 4 percentage points below where we were at the peak in 2008 we've got a heck of a lot of ground to catch up and at the current rate of progress it's going to take us a very long time to do that it will be the slowest recovery from recession since the great depression so that puts into uh, obviously not such a deep recession as then but it's 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 very very slow recovery that's the first problem the second problem i think is that the components of that um, growth are exactly the opposite of what the government wants to see. Um, there's supposed to be a rebalancing of the economy towards manufacturing and exports, but actually the sector of the economy that's done best over the last year or so is the city, is the financial and business sector. Manufacturing is still 8% below where it was five years ago, and the productive sector as a whole is something like 12% below. So there is no real sign of rebalancing of the economy at all. We've got a slow-moving economy still dominated by the financial sector. And I hope recovery once again in the hands of the bankers by the sounds of Nick, you used to work in um, number 10. If we just look at the politics of this for a minute, we're only in the second year, the start of a second year of what's meant to be a five-year coalition. So time should be on the Chancellor's side, shouldn't it? I mean, if you were back in the bunker now, would you be um, telling people to calm calm down and carry on? Well, uh, certainly each time you approach the quarterly statistics uh, for GDP, it was a big deal in number 10. I mean, they were eagerly anticipated. You put a load of time into preparing for it, and it really did um, make people think hard. I I think myself that this was the first time this week that the government has appeared politically and intellectually weak on the the economy since the election. It dominated its account of the deficit, its account of uh, what macroeconomic policy, and particularly fiscal policy, needed to do uh, after the election, you know, commanded considerable support in the media and uh, uh, amongst the public. It didn't look anything like as secure as that last week. And certainly, if we have such weak growth for an extended period of time, then it's going to be much harder to close the deficit because we need to be borrowing more because growth and output are lower than we would want. So it does seem to me that something 
quite big happened this week in the kind of politics of uh, the economy. Paradoxically for Labour, I think, I mean, it strengthened the arguments that people like Ed Balls and others have been, been making that they appear to look as if they're uh, on the right track. But it magnifies the distance between what Labour has to do now and what it will do at the election, because the election has got to look like it's credible on the public finances again. And that's a different task to the one it has now when it's arguing for more growth and jobs. And Julian, I mean, you've written in terms of both the bond markets, if you like, and the ballot box, that um, there can't suddenly be a plan B, whether we'd like one or not. And the coalition can only think about plan A plus. Can you just explain what you mean by that? Well, I think there can be some variation. And clearly borrowing is, is, is a target which is then affected by what actually happens in, in, in the real world, including how much people claim in benefits and how much uh, tax revenues come in. So borrowing is, is, is one of the things that also has come out in the last few days is slightly ahead at the moment of, of where Osborne wants it. Um, in fact, despite all the talk of cuts in cash terms, spending and borrowing is going up. So every plan is subject to, to difficulty. I think the government's problem is partly uh, GDP figures, as, as, as Larry says. It's also that the uh, this is being combined with high inflation, massively rising prices, particularly on things like fuel that people are being hit by. And that produces an absolute sense of anxiety amongst uh, the electorate, which then cuts back on spending and it becomes a sort of self-perpetuating cycle. I don't think it's only state spending cuts that are causing this. It's, it's, it's a wider thing than that. And I think certainly inflation is not being caused by state spending cuts. Uh, as for the plan A+, plus. well, I hope the government has looked quite feeble this week, not on its general plan for austerity, which they would argue, the opposite of what Nick was saying, they would argue that events around the rest of the world are actually reinforcing their argument that borrowing is not an easy thing to do and may have some substantial downside. Uh, but the government has looked very weak on its plan for a better tomorrow, for growth, for what it wants the economy to be. Uh, we had some stuff from Vince Cable, I think, coming out today, uh, saying that shops that sell televisions won't have to report the fact that the TV's been sold to the BBC so they can't chase you up for a licence. So that kind of cutting of red tape is their stimulus plan. It's, it's not enough. So we do need more. And I don't think ministers have been good at that. I think in particular Vince Cable has been absolutely feeble on this. Uh, it should be his job to be out there being the man for growth, for business. The, the role a bit that Mandelson began to play under Brown, he's not fulfilled that role. Osborne is never going to fulfill that role. Danny Alexander can't do it. Nobody in the government is. So there is a weakness. I don't think the weakness is, is, is the austerity target. I think the weakness is, is, is where the growth is going to come from. Come back to the regulation point in a minute, but Larry, on the... I mean, do you think the weakness is the austerity and the, the rate of the cuts, or do you think it's it's really a much wider mix of factors, as Julian's saying? I, I think it would be you'd be hard-pressed to say that the problems of the economy over the last nine months are entirely due to public spending cuts, because mm. most of the public spending cuts didn't actually come into force until the spring of this year. I think it's a much broader problem than that. And if you look at the, the four big components of growth... Consumer spending is the most important one, and that's really being clobbered a bit by a bit by the austerity because taxes have gone up, and I think that's affected consumer confidence. But also, Julian's right, real incomes are being brutally squeezed by a combination of low wage growth and high inflation. So the gap between what you're getting in every week and what you're paying out is as wide as it's been for 30 or, or so years. And that's really having a dampening effect on consumer confidence and consumer spending. Now, the next component of demand is investment. A lot of businesses have actually got quite cash rich. They've got a lot of money in the bank. And the hope is that they're going to sort of go on a, on, on a, on a spending binge themselves, so investing in new plant machinery. But they're not going to do that while consumer spending is as weak as it is. So that leaves the other two components. One is exports. The export market is being affected by what's going on in the Eurozone and in the US, our two biggest export markets. There's a sovereign debt crisis in the Eurozone crisis 
which has still not really been resolved, and America's now brink, on the brink of, uh, of of a credit rating downgrade. So though the, the export picture is not particularly bright. And the fourth, the fourth and last one is government spending. And here, obviously, th- this is where Osborne's policies do have an impact. If all the other three components are weak, uh, of demand are weak, then it's sort of a bit, it's a bit risky to be having such big public spending cuts at this time. I think that, that's the argument in favour of perhaps moderating the pace of austerity and actually having the, having the deficit reduction over a longer period, which is that the rest of the economy, which Osborne was hoping was going to be stronger by now than it actually is, cannot really take up the slack from the public spending cuts. But Julian, that's not without risk is it slowing down the rate of deficit reduction? It's not without risk. And also, it's, it's, it, I mean, clearly borrowing money on the markets. Yeah, Britain has a relatively low stack of total debt to GDP, and that always has to be remembered. It's not, it's not out of control in the way that Greece is. It's a different situation. So the deficit and the debt are different things. So Britain could borrow more. And we, uh, last night, I think, uh, Larry's the expert on this, but I think you know, Britain debt was actually trading cheaper than American debt. So yeah, Britain and, is, and, and, and the Treasury are very, very happy about yeah, that. I mean, they they yeah. see that as a vindication and, of their policy. They say that you know, this is a vote of confidence. We're a safe haven. Money's coming in. And, 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 and to be fair to them, that there is an argument which says that if you have really tight fiscal policy, the monetary policy can remain loose and boost the economy. So it's it's not a. It's not a, a completely. So, so there is some success there, but it, it is. It, you know, it is clearly possible for Britain to try and borrow more. It is also quite possible that were we to borrow much more, and were we to stray far off the current plans, we would have to pay more for it, and that would have a consequent effect on, on the long-term economy as well. So the, the, the trade-off is that. It's also then, if you are going to inject cash into the economy, how do you do it? Do you reduce the pace of cuts? Do you put it into wages of public sector workers? Or as some, both Ed Balls and, and Boris Johnson seem to want tax cuts, and they think that tax cuts will pay for themselves. Well, I'm, I'm not sure about that. And there's a good piece by Chris Giles in the FT today mocking both Ed Balls and, and Boris Johnson for thinking if you cut taxes, you'll, you'll get the revenue back through some magic growth. Of course, that may be in the end where Osborne ends up too on, on business taxation. So there's there's different ways of putting money in. And it's not just slowing the pace of cuts, keeping a few sure start centres, doing the things that maybe the Guardian would want. It, uh, some people in the cabinet, Vince Cable, but also some Tories, uh, think that quantitative easing is the answer, that, that that will somehow inject a bit more liquidity into, into, into a monetary squeeze. There's lots of debate as to what to do. I, I wouldn't say that the government is entirely closed on it, but what they won't do is just abandon the plan which they set out a year ago and just do something completely different. We don't finally know what the Labour plan is either. Ed Balls has not set his out. Nick, um, uh, we've, obviously you can always have an argument about if there is some loosening to be done, what you do, you know, in fiscal loosening us in money to put back into the economy. You can always argue, and it will always be political arguments about what to do with it. But what do you make of just this core question of whether there is scope to do something, whether it's on tax cuts or, or slowing the rate of the uh, of the cutbacks on public spending? Well, I, th- I think Larry's right that uh, in the current circumstances, um, fiscal policy has to play a greater role because otherwise um, growth will be weaker than otherwise would be the case. And uh, for me, I would rather than cut VAT or other taxes, um, I would rather see investment going into our infrastructure and our assets as a country. And of course, you've got to get that spending going fast. That's the, the downside of investment in, in, in spending is that um, it can take time to come through but we need lots of houses in this country we don't build enough uh, our national infrastructure on the transport side needs modernization uh, there are plenty of ways in which uh, if we had the right kinds of investment frameworks uh, you know we could get um, growth going again building things that will support growth in the future and um, you know there are lots of multipliers to things like transport investment so i would like to see a national investment bank i would like to see that putting money into uh, you know green renewable energy into transport into housing those are the sorts of things which um, will prepare the country for the future and help us grow now but you can't do that julian can you without 
rewriting Osborne's plans, that kind of well, stuff? Well, I think you can begin to, and at the risk of harmony breaking out, I agree entirely with, with everything you just said. You agree with um, Nick? Yeah, I think I agree with Nick, to, to, to coin a phrase. The, and, and not to defend Osborne endlessly, but transport investment was protected to some extent. Well, from, it's still being cut a lot. It's being cut to some extent, but it is not being cut a lot. Um, high-speed rail is going ahead, cross-rail is going ahead, massive electrification of, of, of railways is going ahead. So that could have been cut. A far greater extent than it has been and we do want more I mean the government yesterday published or this week published planning proposals which didn't get a lot of coverage because there's so much else around but will become a big story over the next few months which are going to produce absolute uproar and they already have from things like the National Trust to the campaign to protect rural England Tory constituencies will start to get very unhappy about it because it will speed up the development of land and that is in part a growth strategy and the pressure to change the policy from a very localist planning process which began uh, the, the coalition began with something that would have actually frozen development has ended up with something that will speed it up almost a brownite thing it's gone further than Kate Barker ever did uh, yeah. uh, now that is a growth strategy it doesn't involve government spending but it does involve promoting and easing the development of things which will boost the economy uh, and and, and, and Labour just to finally Labour is actually opposing that plan I think the the, the problem I think strategically with the government's ideas is they're all about the supply side of the economy and nothing about the demand side of the economy and the problem at the moment is demand is so weak and I think that all these questions of deregulation and planning laws and so on they may well have a role to play in in an overarching strategy which has uh, you know, awareness given to demand as well as supply, but the supply side policies on their own are certainly not not going to do the trick. I think. I mean, I, personally, I think that um, there should be more QE, um, and it should be used to fund a proper green investment bank or a national investment bank. There should the, the, the QE that was pumped into the economy, I think, in two thousand and nine ten, was probably not particularly well targeted. And I think if we are going to have more QE, it should be much better targeted. At, this at, is at, quantitative easing or, or printing yeah, money. Yeah, essentially, like the bank that. of the Bank of England buys guilts from the banks and um, essentially creates money it creates but I mean I think that the, the bank could could do it in a much more sort of targeted way that be uh, on the fiscal side I think that cutting VAT which is Ed Ball's idea is not a particularly smart long-term plan if there's one problem I mean, at the moment we've got a problem of consumption but over the long term the Britain's problem is that we consume far more than we produce so just boosting consumption to me doesn't seem like a particularly good long-term strategy I'd much rather see um, national insurance contributions are cut, which would actually put people... It's, it's true on quantitative easing, and, and, and lots of people in the government want it, and they agree, too, that the way it happened last time just put a boosted bank bonuses. Yeah. It didn't actually reach people and didn't reach lending. The hard thing is, is how to shape that, of course, when you have a nominally independent committee, and, and it's being lectured in public and in private by ministers of both parties from the government. It, it may listen, it may not. It's up to them. Nick, on the supply side that Larry was talking about there, the um, the big news this morning is that number 10's blue sky man steve hilton is saying um that what we need to do is get rid of maternity pay and various other employment protections yeah i mean it's funny because he's supposed to be the progressive one and uh, some of these ideas look very redolent of the worst kind of 80s throwbacks to uh you know uh, complete voodoo economics do you think he, he really did. said it all then uh, no he probably I'm, I'm sure i mean what you hear of the man is that he does you know throw out lots of things and you know 10 percent of them happen um mercifully i think these ones are so stupid cutting maternity leave, consumer protections, that they never will happen. And uh, they appear from the FT today to have been seen off anyway. This is an after-the-fact briefing. Uh, these aren't going to happen. Um, but, you know, it is, I'm afraid, uh, a problem for the government if all it appears to have on growth. I mean, I think what Julian says about planning is, is more important. But on you know th- things of this kind, lots of little bits and pieces of deregulation, supply-side kind of uh, deregulations, cuts and so on, you know, they don't amount to a serious strategy for growth. Growth. And of course, you know, have we not learned the lesson of our history that actually investment 
in people, in the productive capacity of workers, in the right kinds of employment protections, in things like childcare, those are the high road to growth. Those are the things that will get you sustainable, productive employment. Uh, and just thinking that, you know... Well, I'm not so sure pay, that's true. You know, and that, that, and both, both things can be true at once, really. One, one is that, that we don't have a route to growth being mapped out, um, and that the government has lots of bits and pieces which are not going to have any short-term effect or very limited short-term effect. That doesn't mean that doing something else is necessarily going to work. I don't know if you look at the history of the British economy that the moments when the government was most interventionist um, have been followed by growth. Uh, the, the supporters of supply-side economics would argue that the 1980s produced the 1990s. Uh, growth that, that this has a long-term effect it doesn't operate immediately but it does work the, co- the countries that are doing best now that are growing now successfully uh, are those where you've got long-term investment in industry where you've got skilled workers where employers uh, properly bargain with their workers the nordic countries hugely resilient very very uh, fiscally sound uh, nordic investment bank really good childcare, great employment protections that leads long term to a much healthier economy the notion you'll get there from 1980s supply side voodoo stuff is rubbish one thing is that uh, I think we could all agree might help Britain's economy bounce back would be that elusive export boom. But the Eurozone, our chief trading partner, is still mired in huge problems of its own as the uh, continent's indebted south looks in desperation to Germany in the north to try and stay afloat. Um, The support's coming, but it's not coming cheap. And the politics of the EU integration is now turning toxic right across the continent. Aditya Chakraborty is in Athens. When it comes to how the agreement reached in Brussels last week has been received in Athens, I think we can call it a tale of two reactions. There's a reaction on the part of government and the officials, which is along the lines of, look how well we did. We went to Brussels and we said that we can't tolerate the debt restructuring deal that you've got for us so far. And we came away with more money and with better terms on our existing book of loans. And... I don't think actually sniffed that, actually, because that's taken a year for this government to, to reach. Um, and as far as they're concerned, the fact that the interest rates on their loans have dipped a lot and that the maturity on their loans have been extended by considerable margin means that their repayment of debts will no longer become a matter of monthly crisis, but it's something that can be managed. That's the first reaction. The second reaction is the reaction of people that I've been speaking to who were in Syntagma Square a few weeks ago protesting against the austerity. And for them, I think the reaction is much more sarcastic. It's, look how well the government did. They came away with precisely nothing. I was talking last night to a bunch of people who'd been gathering in Syntagma Square and who were quite engaged with coming up with a, a kind of alternative economic policy to the one that they're, been, they're, they're facing at the moment. And as far as they're concerned, whatever the kind of technicalities of the negotiations at a place like Brussels or Strasbourg or Frankfurt or Luxembourg, what it means in Athens is spending cuts, job losses, tax rises, and no prospect of economic growth. So what they're talking about among the protesters who gathered in Syntagma Square just a few weeks ago is this will all start again. All the protests start again come the beginning of September, the first week of September. And for them, nothing's changed. Aditya Chakraborty there. So, Larry, um, what he's saying is uh, relief in the bureaucracy, but nothing more than a pause in the rage on the streets. Well, I think that's probably a pretty good assessment. Um, I think the policymakers in Athens are quite relieved that they got something. And I think that's probably true across the whole of the European Union, the whole of the Eurozone. Um, The real question, though, is whether what happened last week 
really effectively deals with the problem, which is that the countries on the periphery of the Eurozone are struggling to grow fast enough to get down their, get their debts down, to get their public finances in order and get their level of debt down. And I think, don't think it nearly does enough for that. And I actually think this is a real structural problem with the Eurozone. And so we're going to see, I think, sticking plaster, large amounts of sticking plaster placed on these economies. But it's, it is just sticking plaster. It doesn't actually resolve the fundamental problem, which is that we have a, a core of countries in the Eurozone which can com- compete with each other and are actually quite, um, quite, quite, compliment- uh, quite, quite complementary to each other. And you've got a bunch of countries on the periphery who really just can't cut it. And Greece is one of those. And I think that until the Eurozone resolves that essential problem, uh, these crises are going to flare up. And there are really only two ways of doing that. One is for the Eurozone to break up and just have a hardcore based around Germany, Austria, Netherlands, a couple of other countries, Finland maybe, and, and, the, and the rest form their own outer band. Or the European Union goes further and faster and deeper into full political integration so that you would have a proper European finance ministry to run alongside a European central bank because essentially what was set up in the late 1990s was half a house rather than the full thing they put they put in place the central bank to manage monetary policy but they didn't have a European chance of exchequer to manage fiscal policy and that fundamental weakness has now come back to haunt them in a very very big way and so really you know if you if you assume as I do that muddling along the whole Mr McCorber strategy that something will turn up We've reached the end of the road for that. There really are, there's really just a binary choice. Break it up or integrate faster. Wow. So uh, centrifugal politics rather than economics, Julian, as much as anything is, is, is pulling it apart. Which way do you think it's going to go if Larry's right? It's got to go to ever closer union or all the opposite. Well, it is, it is possible that the sticking plaster will hold for some time and we'll get another sticking plaster and that there won't be a clear decision. There won't be a moment when we suddenly get an integrated European government. We'll just creep towards it. We'll effectively get Germany deciding what happens each time. There won't be a big new treaty that, that does it. But, but Larry's right. I think another problem is we still haven't really reached in our minds and the markets haven't reached in our minds whether Greece is an exception, the worst of all, the place where every MP gets an executive car, where salaries are pretty high, where public sector workers don't do very much in lots of jobs, where the railways are a complete joke and cost a huge amount of money to run. And other bits of the Eurozone also in trouble, like Italy and Spain, much bigger economies, are serious economies with the potential of, 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 of good state management to slowly sort of recover the situation. Or whether really a huge number of countries are broken. I mean, we've seen Cyprus suddenly come into the target right now, tied quite cl- closely to Greece. And if it is just one after another, where each one looks like the new Greece, in the end it will collapse. It can't, it can't go on. But it's, I think the test for me is really what happens with Spain. If Spain... It, is a, is a completely different order to Greece. It's, 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 a, it's a proper, serious world economy. If it can't work within the euro in its current structure, then I, I don't know, we'll even get a small eurozone. We'll just get a lot of, a lot of new currencies and, and mayhem. Uh, just on, if, if there is going to be a question, maybe not a grand new treaty, but whether to get more involved or less involved in um, helping the euro so apply these sticking plasters it's going to cause a hell of a strain within the coalition isn't it here yes and and, i mean at the moment the coalition is sort of watching europe and and, and thanking john major and ed bulls for keeping them out of the euro and sort of not doing doing a great deal of activist role it's interesting to hear ed bulls calling on the government to be more involved but it's not quite clear what it is that, that he'd want them to be doing at the moment i think a new treaty or a treaty change would get through the Commons as long as it didn't affect Britain. There isn't going to be a huge rebellion on on that, I think, inside the Conservative Party. There'll be a few people. But even the Eurosceptics have said they'd support that. 
I, I think the more fundamental problem is that there is no democratic support across Europe for the European Union. It isn't just the euro. It's all very well to talk about let's have a more integrated Europe to direct the economy, but no very few voters want that. So we're effectively saying that the financial and political elites of Europe are just going to abolish democracy and impose you know, a, a, a sort of executive state across the will of the people. If we want European Union to uphold the values... We well, also, they've done that before, haven't they? Indeed, it's, it's happened before, and arguably, it's, you know, the Eurosceptics are being proved right. that They said the European Union was always an anti-democratic project. It's hard to say it's not now. Anything to say in defence? Yes, well, no, I think, um, I mean, certainly recent events have laid bare some of the tensions in the Eurozone. But, of course, remember, Germany's got a lot of skin in this game, too. 80% of its trade surplus is with the rest of Europe. And I think the political significance of last week was that, essentially, Europe did have to make a call, and it chose the latter of Larry's options. It said, we are going to save the Eurozone, we're going to save this European project, to which we've been committed since the Second World War. Uh, And the implication for that is that a lot more will need to be done, more fiscal transfers, more coordination, much more investment in the peripheral economies. But Julian is right that that then throws up a democratic challenge. Essentially, do you want Europe that uh, that deepens its uh, economic uh, coordination without the politics that flow from that? And basically, the, the citizens of Europe, I think, are more committed to Europe than Julian thinks, but they want democracy and well, it can't be done from Brussels. If um, fiscal messes are are difficult to deal with without democracy it can also get pretty tricky when you do have democracy as well as we're seeing in the united states which currently seems hell-bent on pressing its own economic self-destruct button we're days away from a technical default in washington the republicans who control the house are refusing to compromise on balancing the books holding out for a deal with no tax rises at all and deep health and social security cuts richard adams is our man in washington this is an unusual situation. You have, you have U.S. governments can pass budgets, and then on top of this, they have the debt ceiling. So these, these are two separate things. And it's a ridiculous system, and it's a historical anomaly as much as anything else. I mean, yes, it does tell you about the divisions in U.S. politics, but the nature of the U.S. political system is that um, the executive and the legislature are often divided in this way. Uh, and this... This, however, is an even more unusual situation. I mean, I, I think everyone is assuming there will be a, a compromise and that the debt ceiling will be raised, and I think that's what will happen. But six days to go. I mean, usually these things happen right at the end, so we can, we can expect this to drag out for a few days more. And, of course, what does it mean for Obama and his hopes next for a re-election next year? I think in the long run it will probably have little effect on uh, Obama. The only thing that would have a real effect, obviously, would be a default. I mean, but that would affect everybody, Republicans and Democrats. The other thing is, if the U.S. loses its AAA credit rating from the rating agencies, the Republicans will try and tar Obama as the man who lost AAA. So, and that, of course, because of the state of the economy as well, will, of course, affect him negatively. But then, of course, Richard, there's a blame game. Uh, well, that, that is the issue. If you look at the public opinion polls that, that are existing, uh, they tend to give both sides bad marks for the handling of the economy and for this, for this issue in particular. The Republicans, however, have done much worse. So the, gov- the public are tending to blame the Republicans. A majority, uh, on some of the polls I've looked at, the majority of Americans want a deal done and they don't really care about the details. So in that case, if the Republicans overplay their hand too much, they'll end up getting the blame. Richard Adams there. Um, Now, Larry, 
he was saying Republicans might be losing the blame game. You're on record as saying that you think they're going to fold first. Yeah, I think they will fold first uh, for two reasons. One is that there, there's some history here of the Republicans trying to shut down the government in the 1990s uh, under Newt Gingrich, and that actually played much better for Bill Clinton than it did for the Republicans. The second is I think that most of the cards are ultimately in Obama's hands, and that if he, if he wanted to, he could just order the government to print more money to fund Americans' debt. In the end, you could do it, provided you did it only for a short period of time and weren't too bothered about what happened, what the inflationary consequences were. So I think in the end, the Republicans will blink first and there will be a deal next week. But I don't actually think the, the Americans will default on their debt, although I do think they probably will get downgraded anyway, because raising the debt ceiling will actually spook the ratings agencies to, to, to a degree, and they will probably cut America's AAA rating, whatever happens uh, over, the, over this discussion. But I do think that actually the Republicans are in a much weaker position strategically than they appear to be, although they're, they're actually quite in a quite strong tactical position. And I think the problem, I mean, the interesting point about American politics is that, you know, it's almost a mirror image of British politics in the 1980s, where you've got sort of Tea Party, like the extreme left here, which assumes that actually everybody believes what they believe, but actually they are alienating the sort of broad mass of American public opinion. And in the end, American politics, like British politics, like politics almost everywhere, clusters around the centre ground. And if parties appear to be too weird, too extreme, too crazy, which is what the Tea Party in that wing of the Republican Party is in danger of appearing to be, then that is not a good place to be politically. I mean, that, that might be right, Julian, but in the here and now, it looks like whatever deal emerges, and a deal will probably emerge, it's going to be very much spending cuts, not tax rises, and um, the Republicans kind of carrying the carrying the day on that. Do you think the great speechmaker Obama is turning out to be a miserable negotiator? No, I mean, I'm still an Obama fan, and, that, and I think Larry's right that what will happen in, in America is the Republican Party will get painted as the nutty party. It probably will choose, or may choose, a candidate who looks pretty much at the margins, and Obama will be able to emerge through that, and I'm sure it's his strategy to do so. It's why he, uh, he, he sort of picked on Donald Trump at that White House dinner not very long ago in public. He wants to present these people. He wants to give them a platform. Um, that's a very dangerous thing in the short term for him because he's got to avoid the economy imploding at the same time. Uh, but, yeah, he, his, his, his strategy will be to, to come through the middle. Um, in terms of tax rises versus um, spending, well, the problem is that the American people voted for Republicans mm. in, in, in Congress. And, and we go back to the point about democracy, that what's good for people or what some people think is good for people, isn't always what the people actually vote for. And constantly in these, in these current debates, Europe as well, we're seeing the contrast between what people actually want and what they can have. And, you know, in Greece, the, no doubt the people of Greece would like everything to be free and, and, and have no taxes at all and be able to drive around on their yachts, but they can't. And that is also the issue in America. It would be nice, no doubt, to have lots of spending. Um, if people vote for a Congress that doesn't want spending and does want tax cuts, then that's what they'll get instead. And Obama is caught there. Well, I suppose they voted for Obama as well, didn't they, Nick? I mean, what, it's, what's your reading of the, the checks and balances here? Do you think the Republicans can say, we won the election most recently and therefore our plan stays? Or do you think... Well, I think Larry's right that uh, in the end, Obama has the cards and he can veto anything that the Republicans uh, put before Congress. The problem is, is that American politics has polarised very uh, sharply over the last 30 or so years. The Republican Party's moved to the right. Fox News has made it harder for moderate Republicans to get uh, nominated. And uh, it does mean that the centre of gravity is further to the right than would have been the case 30 or so years ago. And, you know, actually, we won't get a progressive solution to this because most of it will be in spending cuts rather than uh, tax increases. And, you 
you know, look at the last 30 years in the US, the, the top 1% have seen a roaring gains in uh, the, the share of the pie they take. Uh, and so, you know, it seems to me that, you know, the, the tragedy of this is that probably there will be a deal. It won't be one that uh, will be particularly good for the American people seen in the round over the longer term. Uh, and Obama will come out of it, I think, having perhaps, yes, painted the Republicans as, as being nutty and difficult, but he's got to get to an election where people have better employment prospects and rising living standards, and that is the big difficulty for him because it requires stimulus. What does it tell us, though, Julian, about just the workability of America's famous and you know, constitution written by God, or so some of them seem to think? Are the checks and balances that um, is what it's known for? Do they just become an obstacle to getting anything at all done when one party becomes, as Nick says, very, very ideological? I don't think it is a complete obstacle. And of course, we have to look at you know, American state legislatures as well. This is not only a federal issue and that a financial crisis in America is happening on state debt as much as, as federal stuff. No, I think I mean, America has achieved amazing things since the Constitution was written. It would be wrong to say this Constitution has been an obstacle. This is, this is the country which has been the most successful society on the planet for two centuries, really, or a century and a half since the American Civil War. Um, what we would perhaps like in, in, in the immediate crisis is a president who is decisive, powerful, and can get things through. Well, Obama has been that president at times, and he hasn't always got... You know, he, ha- he, had, he had the Congress with him at the start. He chose certain issues. He chose health care reform as a thing, and he did get it through. On this, well, he's going to have to negotiate down to the wire. We've all sat, watched the West Wing and seen these kind of things role played out, and, and everybody says it'll be a deal. It won't be a deal for stimulus. Well, we haven't got a Congress that wants stimulus, and we did have stimulus in America for a long time. It, is, it, is, it isn't the case to say America hasn't had this before. It, it, there is a point at which this won't be sustained. It's the true of Britain, too. You have stimulus up to a point. You can't just constantly have stimulus in the hope that one day yeah. you will get out of recession. The, 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 the problem, biggest... problem for the US, though, that withdrawing the stimulus now has real economic risks. I mean, it's, it's, it's in some ways just a bigger version of the UK, which is that their economy is growing very slowly, too. They've got something like 25 million people in negative equity. They've got, you know, they've got 9% plus unemployment. And actually, you have to say that actually big tax increases and and big spending cuts at this juncture do not look like a particularly sensible recipe for the American economy going forward. And I think that's the problem for Obama. He's got to fight this election in a year's time, probably with unemployment higher than any president since Roosevelt, you know, um, in terms of winning. I mean, no, no, no president has won with unemployment at this, at this level since Roosevelt in the 1930s. And that is, a, that is a, I'm sure, been drummed into him endlessly by his, by his advisers. So this is the problem, just, uh, just on Julian's point. I mean, deficits have risen in the US primarily because of cuts, tax cuts. And they've, they've risen under uh, Republican presidents much more than under Democrats. And the, the, the thing in the US is if you don't have things like unemployment benefit, automatic stabilisers, all you have to get people back to work and to raise their living standards is stimulus. That's all you can do. And so this is where some of these sort of big problems in the US, it's lack of a welfare state, uh, do come into play. Well, um, that's just about all we've got time for. Um, my producer has alerted me to the fact that we should be calling this Ed Nose Day and that Ed Miliband is having his adenoids seen to. And um, I think I'm just going to ask um, you finally, Julian, do you think if Ed does come out of this operation sounding slightly different, would that make a material difference to how voters um, hear him? Or do you think it's really all about what he's got to say? Uh, it wouldn't yet. They haven't listened to him so far. They don't know what he sounds like. <laughs> <laughs> well, on that heartening note for uh, the recovering Labour leader, we'll call things to a halt. Um, uh, we do want to know what you think of the podcast. So if you had time and you were good enough, do take part in a short survey at politics.podcast at gmail.com. My thanks to Nick Pierce, to Julian Glover and to Larry Elliott. The producer was Phil Maynard. I'm Tom Clark, and thanks very much for listening. 
For more great downloads, go to guardian.co.uk forward slash audio.